Marty at Good Morning. First of all, thank you to John and the team for the opportunity to speak to you this morning, which I appreciate. And uh, this busy part of our church calendar, as John has uh, lightly um, tiptoed over, there's a whole variety of names that are talked about at this time in the church calendar. Uh, and they can be a little bit confusing, so we hear All Saints Day and we hear All Souls Day. So this observance, this three-day observance in the church calendar is known, particularly in Europe, as All Hallow Tide. And All Hallow Tide is from October 31st through to November the 2nd of each year. And each day has a different name. So the 31st of October, as John said, is All Hallows Eve, which more commonly known now as Halloween, uh, potentially two different things. Uh, and then there's All Saints Day, and that's followed by All Souls Day. Here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and in the Anglican Church, we set aside this time of the Sunday closest to All Hallowtide as a time to thank God for the lives and the deaths of all of His saints. When we talk about saints, in a lot of ways, we talk about people in the same way that Tangata Fini will talk about the people who have passed on, which is that all people who have uh, ascended to heaven are, in some sense, saints. So there's saints with a big S, and then there's saints with a little S. That's probably the easiest way. Easiest way. Similarly, in Te Māori, uh, when we talk about God now, we use the word Atua, which is A-T-U-A, and the first A is a capital, which is one of those tricks the missionaries play when they are writing the language. Um, but actually the word Atua is much older than that and it would have had a small A, I guess. And all of our people who passed on were called Atua. Not ancestors, but Atua. So what it actually means is those who have gone beyond us or uh, who are beyond us. Uh, so in many ways, the way the European church regards saints is quite similar to the way that my ancestors would have regarded Atua, which is uh, our people who have loved to move beyond us. So this does bear some similarity, this season of All Hallow Tide, with our season of Matariki here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. So Matariki is observed in late June every year. Uh, here in Toto, it's the start of the, well if you're not lazy, it's the start of preparing the garden beds uh, and growing the seedlings for the spring and summer to come. Uh, and it's signalled by the rising of the 80s, uh, which is what Matariki was, and on the horizon at dawn at that period of time. The clearer you can see the stars, then the better your growing season was going to be. But in mythological terms, and on our marae, is also the time when we remember those people who have gone before us uh, and who passed on in the last year. Uh, and so, um, in all of our speeches, all of those people who have gone are remembered at that time. So, if there's some similarity to what we do and all saints. And we talk about them as being which is to join the multitudes who are reflected in the stars, which is a, a nice image. So this is the time to remember and time to give thanks for those who have passed on. Uh, we've just recently had Harry Ormsby pass away in our community of Maryvale. Henry, Harry is, was my uh, cousin uh, and um, at home at Tutaranga Marae, Harry was uh, worked in the kitchen, burnt plastic in the rubbish out the back, 
uh, probably smoked too many cigarettes. Uh, and he lived in Miraval the whole time that uh, we've been in Miraval. And but in our community of Miraval, he was a comato. Uh, so he had an honoured place uh, as the older person who guided a whole lot of community events and community activities. Uh, and always a strong supporter of our community of, of Miraval. So at this time, um, he's remembered by us on the All Saints, All Souls Day. Uh, and then uh, the other person we remember at this time is Awanui Black, uh, who was a significant chief, Amatira, for our tribe here in Tauranga, who passed away too young, and he was 40, 47, when he passed away, uh, and um, a huge depository of knowledge uh, for our people was lost uh, in that death. So, like yourself, we all have people that we carry uh, into this day that we want to remember. When we're doing that, it's interesting to reflect that Matariki, so this uh, Māori festival of remembrance, has grown in increased prominence over the past decade. So even if you don't know what it's about, you've probably heard the word or seen it written down in a council document somewhere. Uh, and that's happened right around Aotearoa, that this idea of Matariki has grown in prominence and interest. But All Saints Day and All Souls Day really struggles to garner any attention outside the church because it's sandwiched between Halloween and Guy Fawkes, which are two far more interesting uh, celebrations, particularly if you're under the age of 20. <laughs> so on one side you have Halloween, All Hallows' Eve, as we've talked about, which is an old Christian celebration. It's probably borrowed from a pagan festival uh, to try and keep it relevant to the communities in Europe at that time. Uh, and in Europe, it tended to mark the end of summer uh, and the preparation for uh, autumn and winter. Now, as a farmer, as John uh, talked about, we tend not to observe Halloween, uh, but we stretched the definition of that this year. Uh, and... Uh, uh, the peer pressure on our tamariki and our community is enormous now around Halloween. And what's not to love? There's costumes, there's chocolates, there's lollies. Halloween sounds like the perfect children's festival. Um, plus there's scary masks, I guess that's quite compelling as well. So the last thing my children want to hear, and whilst John's right that they have heard it from me, but the last thing they actually want to hear is the historical context of Halloween. <laughs> Um, they don't want to hear that the costumes exist uh, from a tradition where one way to confuse the spirits that were coming to steal your soul was to dress up like those spirits. And that the other thing you can do is you can provide them lollies as a sacrifice so that they wouldn't take your soul. Uh, so they weren't particularly interested in those interesting historical facts. <laughs> so you've got Halloween on one side of, all, of this all Halloween tide, and then on the other side, uh, we have Guy Fawkes. Uh, and I, I actually tweeted last night that I love Guy Fawkes because it gives me an opportunity to grumble about how much I hate Guy Fawkes. Uh, so this is the other. It's always going to have something to grumble about. So Guy Fawkes, of course, was an unfortunate bomber, 1605, the gunpowder plot, uh, who failed to blow up the English Parliament and kill the king with his other Catholic co-conspirators. I don't know if it's a historical fact, but I've always assumed that his wick was wet, and so it wouldn't light. So he sounded useless, basically, basically at his job. Uh, and so essentially, this is an opportunity every year to mock 
papers. So the box of Catholics. So I'm assuming it's not well celebrated within the Catholic Church. And uh, so when we do guide talks, and again, my kids don't want to know this, but then what we're celebrating is the ongoing and glorious reign of our monarch, uh, and um, also that about 200 to 300 New Zealanders will be putting in ACC claims for injuries as a result of Guy Fawkes Day. So both of those in our community are interesting, exciting, engaging festivals, and here we have All Saints Day, All Souls, All Souls Day, which is an important opportunity for reflection and for contemplation. But it is drowned out by advertising and by fireworks. And we shouldn't be surprised by that uh, in some ways because what we try to do often in our church calendar is import essentially lots of European festival or observance here into this, into this uh, context of Aotearoa New Zealand. So something that was placed at the end of their summer seems less relevant when we're turning our attention to summer and to barbecues and to Christmas and to the beach. So one of the things we need to do as a church is to ensure that our church calendar speaks to who we are here, if that calendar is to become a genuine rhythm for the lives of the people who are part of congregations, but also the lives of people in our country. And from my mind, this opportunity to, for All Saints and All Souls Day uh, to be relevant to here is presented in the story of Harihata, which is the village you can see on the screen in front of you. The story of Parihaka is a reflection on death, it's a reflection on suffering, it's also a reflection on the eternal reward of followers of Christ. And it, that happened here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and has been part of understanding our, our beliefs and acknowledgement of non-violence, of our faith, and of Tangata Whenua in this place. Which really takes us back to that reading from Revelations. These are they who have come out of the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before the throne of God and worship Him day and night within His temple. And the one who is seated on the throne will shelter them. They will hunger no more and thirst no more. The sun will not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the centre of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Parihapa shelters underneath Mount Taranaki, in Taranaki, uh, and it faces towards the Tasman Sea, as you can see there. Um, today, it's a small settlement. There's quite a few whare, quite a few houses of the whānau, like a lot of our Māori communities. Most of the focus has been put into meeting houses rather than in our own homes, so they're a little, some of them look a little bit run down. But there's a fair amount of ruins, and it kind of swips, sits on this bare, windswept plain, <coughs> so none of the bush you can see here is, is still there. In some ways, other than the people, it doesn't strike you as particularly a hospitable place to, to be living. But the Parihaka of the 19th century was something else entirely, something else altogether. So after 1864, Te Whiti O Mai, 
and Tohukakahi, the two rangatira who had been involved in the first Taranaki Wars, uh, and uh, who had experienced the impact of that growing conflict between the Crown and Tangata Whenua and Taranaki. You probably click forward on the slide. Where was my clicker today? There we go. The Fiti or Rongomai and Tohukakahi. These two men, observing what was going on, were in a conviction that the path to war would lead to the loss of everything for the Taranaki tribes. And so what they forged was a new path about unity, peace and restoration. And, was, and they took that vision inland to Parihata, which they founded in 1866. So it was there that they led the Taranaki people, uh, the Tiatiawa people, Ngāti Ruanui, to build a self-sustaining community. So when I say self-sustaining, they had enormous uh, gardens, uh, it had a bakery uh, from wheat that they had grown. Uh, had, uh, there was a mill. Um, there were modern architecture, so a lot of the houses were um, Victorian villas rather than traditional rokor huts. Uh, and some of them had uh, wooden floors rather than dirt floors. It was um, known for its careful town planning. It was the first settlement in New Zealand to have gas lighting, gas street lighting throughout the whole community. Um, and in addition to that, they had a really strong community ethic. So town meetings were a regular, potentially daily part of life in Parihaka. It was a go-ahead, growing uh, community, an example of what's possible when people put aside war and come together around a vision and around peace. Both of these men were missionary trained. So Tefiti, I know a little bit more about than Tohu, but Tefiti learned under uh, Reverend Johann Reimenschneider, uh, and Reimenschneider was a uh, Reformed Protestant minister who arrived with the Lutheran uh, mission. He actually arrived to where my wife's ancestors are from in Nelson uh, initially. Uh, and uh, he uh, was 10 years in Taranaki as a missionary, and Tefiti learned underneath him and became a teacher uh, in the church alongside Reimenschneider. Um, when Reimenschneider left and as conflict grew, what Tefiti and Tohu did was they renegotiated this European Christianity that they had been given alongside their own local uh, mātauranga, their own local knowledge, to, found, to find a God who was deeply rooted in this place, in Aotearoa, in Taranaki. And that God joined them and their people and the trials and abuses that were going on at that time with Tangata Whenua. So these two chiefs, Bamatira, were men of deep faith and deep conviction, and they called on Māori to resist colonisation with non-violence, and to forego violence, to forego division, and they called on the Crown as well to commit to the Tiriti of Waitangi, uh, into the relationship in that covenant. Subsequently, uh, many people of, from tribes throughout Aotearoa came and joined them, and Parihaka saw an explosion in their development and growth. Uh, and their town was organised around tribal, um, uh, tribal areas, so like little neighbourhoods in Parihaka for different tribes throughout the country, but everyone came together for community meetings at the meeting house 
Toruana, which means the great albatross. Now, much of Taranaki in the late 1860s, at the end of the Taranaki Wars, was confiscated. Um, however, the lands between the Waimomoro and Hangatuahua rivers were not included in the original confiscation. So the people of Parihaka were specifically founded in the expectation that those lands were going to be retained by the people of Taranaki, and so they could build a settlement there uh, along their own uh, tikanga, their own practice and approach, without uh, causing problems for the Crown. Well, that expectation, of course, uh, belies the, uh, the debates that were going on in Parliament and in the Pākehā community at that time. Particularly, the Crown really was deeply worried about the example of, of Parimata. The example of Parimata was of Māori being able to forge their own lives uh, with their own agency and their own authority alongside Pākehā communities. And particularly for the Taranaki MPs of that time, it was an unacceptable uh, example for other communities to see. And so many of those members of Parliament were deeply determined to end the community of Parihaka. It's not everyone in Parliament uh, at that time, but there was definitely hawks uh, in the Parliament, is what we call them today. So in 1879, surveyors came out and started to survey and mark out the land of Parihaka for Pākehā farms and for Rodi. So the response of the people that Tohu and Tafiti led was non-violent resistance, beginning with the ploughing at Ōkuruku. Now every day what would happen is the surveyors would come along and do their job of marking, measuring and putting pegs in the ground and other people would follow behind them putting fences up and all the rest, you know, preparing the land for farms. And every day men would come from the part of Parihaka, they would pull up the survey pegs, they would cut down the fences, and they would replow the fields and replant them again. So from 1879 through to 1881, this is what the people of Parihaka were doing day in and day out. And every day that men did that, they would be arrested uh, and they would be taken away. And the next day, Another group of men will come out and do the same thing on pulling up the pegs, um, cutting down the fences and playing the fields. By 1880, of course, all the Taranaki prisons were full, uh, and so they started moving them out of the area. Uh, firstly to Wellington, then to Christchurch, on their way to Dunedin, uh, and also some to the Pukitika uh, in the west coast as well. And those men who were imprisoned in that place um, were often imprisoned multiple times. So what happened is they might be released, they'd come back, they'd get back involved in the same protest, and they'd be arrested again. So some stayed the whole time, some came back, got re-arrested, and that was kind of the pattern over those couple of years. But the ones who were imprisoned in Wellington and Dunedin in particular were forced labour was, was part of the foundations of those cities. So if you're at the War Memorial Museum and you wander to where the old police station is, you see a wall of bricks down there. Uh, the men of Parihaka were part of 
building that wall and building those foundations that now the museum builds on. And if you're in Dunedin, you went to the university and you've seen the bell tower at the university, the foundations for that building again were established by the Karimata. <coughs> and then the road in through the Octagon uh, was also cleared and established by um, prisoners that included men from Karimata. So they lived hard labour um, in the time that they were imprisoned. Now, on and off, uh, those men were imprisoned uh, for the next 18 years. Not all of them, therefore. Not, not that they were there necessarily for 18 years, but imprisonments of Parihaka men carried on for 18 years. The last prisoner of Parihaka was released in 1898, uh, 18 years after the, uh, the first arrests had begun. And what's important to note is these were imprisoned without trial. They were imprisoned and put into labour without any trial or due process. Now, when the men had all been arrested, essentially, uh, towards 18, the closing of 1880, um, then the women carried on doing the work of the non-violent protest. So when there were no men, then the women would go out and do the same thing. And the crowd was not as interested in imprisoning women as they were imprisoning men uh, because it was um, there were reporters at the time telling the story of Parihaka throughout the country and it became something of a cause, of a celebrated cause in some parts of the Pākehā community that this was not a way to relate to Māori communities and relate uh, to the Parihaka people. This was deeply frustrating to those folks in Parliament and eventually their view prevailed. And you can click forward on the next slide. Click forward. One more. Try not to go. There we go. Eventually their views prevailed and plans were drawn up to destroy the village, the Pa of Parihata. Uh, so on the 5th of November, 1881, led by the uh, Native Affairs Minister, Bryce, who's on a horse, um, I was commenting at the Adicock service, it would be hard pressed to imagine many of our ministers on a horse leading out the constabulary today, but there we go. Um, Jerry Brownlee on a horse, remarkable thought. Um, anyway, Bryce was there, on his horse, he led out 1,500 constabulary who marched from their camp above the park. First of all, they put cannons on a small hill near the village of Parihaka and a proclamation was given, which told everyone in the village they needed to essentially come out and give themselves up and, you know, all the kind of normal stuff you do. But they were roundly ignored by everyone, which was uh, disappointing for all concerned. Uh, so then the constabulary rode into uh, Parihaka uh, towards Toruanui, the meeting house where the people were meeting in the centre of the village. As the constabulary entered, they first of all were faced with children uh, doing a haka pōhiri, or a, a welcome to them um, as they arrived. The first injury was to one of the children who had a hand stood on by one of the horse as the constabulary forced their way uh, through, through the children. Uh, and the children were holding out the rokura as they were uh, welcoming them. And the rokura are the three feathers uh, that's uh, one of those key symbols for Taranaki now and was at that time. Once they had forced their way past, then the constabulary rode in to be greeted by a woman who had 
freshly baked bread that they gave them as gifts as honoured guests for the arrival in the village. No word on what happened to the bread. Um, then they arrived in the middle of the village and there they found Tohu and Kafiti uh, speaking to predominantly women who were sitting around them and they were in the centre. They were called out by the constabulary and they refused to come out and so uh, they carried on their speeches. So their speeches were about their commitment to non-violence and also the expectation that their hopes for peace would be realised. So the constabulary forced their way in and arrested Tohu and Tafiti. Once they'd taken them away for the next two weeks, the village of Parihaka was occupied by those 1500 constabulary. And during their occupation, they evicted people who were from other tribes uh, and sent them on their way. They tore down the houses that were there and burnt, burnt them. They destroyed the crops that had been that were in the ground, and they also uh, chopped down the bush and the trees around the village and burnt those as well. And the other thing that they did was regularly raped and assaulted the woman who remained in the village. Which again brings us back to Revelation 7. These are they who have come out of the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before the throne of God and worship Him day and night within His temple. And the one who is seated on the throne will shelter them. They will hunger no more and thirst no more. The sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the centre of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. It is difficult to find hope in the story of, uh, of the second Parihata. The people who returned over the next years to re-establish life in Pariyaka uh, would often build makeshift houses and it was a regular thing that when constabulary were coming through they would knock over the makeshift houses that had been built and again drive the people away for a number of years after that. Many of the men in particular were arrested multiple times. So initially for that non-violent resistance and then, because there was no way of maintaining their economy in Pariyaka, um, many of the men and women in Pariyaka accrued debts that, because they couldn't pay for things in the town. Uh, so then they would be arrested for the debts that they were able to service uh, to try and survive. And the trauma and abuse that occurred to the people in Pariyaka have led to deep divisions, or led to deep divisions between the whānau of uh, Tōpū and the whānau of Te And those divisions have endured for well over a century as a result of those actions. So Parihaka is a, is a heavy place to visit. It is a place of tears. You can click forward if you want. As I said before, there was a little wind swept. It can seem... Uh, seem lonely, uh, and the story can seem too burdensome, like an uncomfortable place you don't want to stay in. This way I think that a connection between All Saints, All Souls Day, and Parihaka Day bring reason and hope to this story. I think the two of them 
work well together because the suffering and death of Parihata have been an inspiration despite the uh, degradation, despite the abuse, despite the trauma. So famously, of course, well, maybe not of course, famously, Mahatma Gandhi talked about Tafiti and Tohu as being an inspiration to him and his understanding of non-violent resistance uh, and the non-violent resistance that he led in India on the founding of India as an independent country. Their suffering and death in Parihaka have also inspired courageous leadership here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. So recently, of course, we've seen that with Andrew Judd, the ex-mayor of, I think, New Plymouth, who uh, fought hard and stood on principle for, for closer relationships with Tangata Whenua and more decision-making for them uh, in Taranaki affairs. And the suffering and death in Parihaka have also inspired the courage to strive for peace. Parihaka is a central narrative in our non-violent movements since then through to today in Aotearoa Zealand. Put them forward. This is the memorial which you're kind of drawn to when you go to Parihaka, the memorial to the 50 year old mine. Uh, and it sits atop the bakery, which is now just a ruin, which is a really large bakery, uh, and before the house that the 50 year old mine lived. If you put forward one more. And this is uh, Fire Marta. I know a few of you have been to Parihaka, you've probably met Fire Marta. Fire Marta is actually a Pharrell and a Moanador, so proud to say she's essentially my auntie. Uh, certainly she treats you like she's your auntie. Uh, and uh, she is perhaps the most well-known, one of the most well-known people speaking about Parihaka around the country, uh, who has led the renewal of the non-violent mission for Parihaka. And so when I think of her, and I think of her uh, struggles, she's lost her husband, been uh, 30 years there leading this, his vision amongst this community that is their community. And I think there is a place to connect these church seasons of remembrance and of mourning and of commemoration with the blood that rests in the soil of Aotearoa, New Zealand. And so this year, as we mourn, contemplate and give thanks for people of faith, for our family, who passed on, gone before us, and I do say, you know, remember, remember the 5th of November. Because um, as a church, were we in Aotearoa, New Zealand, to commit to connecting stories like Parihata with our season of All Saints and All Souls, then what we do is we transport all hallowed time from Europe to the windswept plains of Taranaki. Uh, and what we have is a narrative that becomes our narrative, our connection point for a truly indigenous church in Aotearoa, New Zealand. So, I'm finish this way. I didn't really have a way to finish in the 8 o'clock service. It seemed a bit lame. But thankfully we had a nice time to start. Uh, and just one of the verses from our opening home. But look, there breaks a yet more glorious day. Saints all triumphant rise and right away. The King of Glory passes on his way. Alleluia, alleluia. Feel the